The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Okay, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, the Gospel of Mark chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be picking up pretty much where we left off, I think, on last week. Uh, this will be my last week to teach for a little bit. Cliff has gotten fed up with it taking uh, 28 weeks to get through chapter 4. No, really, he is, he is going to be back in here beginning on next week, and uh, we've made that swap. I'll be back later, and we'll do four more chapters if we have to at some point. But we're in Mark chapter 4. We're picking up in verse number 35, okay? And there's several phrases we'll point out as we go through Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. Uh, this will most likely be one of the more familiar accounts that you have found throughout the Gospel of Mark. There have been a number of them, obviously, that we are familiar with and have been, but this one will be one of the more familiar ones because it is a discussion, or at least the miracle of Jesus calming the seas. Jesus calming the seas. And I think my main memory of this comes back to when Julianne was little. Uh, we were living, at that time we live in, were living in Oxford. We just bought a house up there for whatever reason. And she looked out the back window of her new bedroom and it was getting ready to storm outside. The wind was blowing pretty hard and everything's going on. And she said, peace be still. And she did it. I'm kidding you not. There wasn't a drop. There wasn't a drop of rain. There wasn't a piece of wind come through after that. I don't know how that happened, but I don't assume that she had the ability that Jesus did. I know she didn't, but she did it. At least I saw that she did. Uh, so when you see this here, don't think of her, but think of him. Uh, but in verse 35, it says this, In the same day uh, when even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away to the multitudes, they took him and was in the ship. And there was also, on, uh, also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat on the ship, and it was now full. And he, that is verse 38, and he, Jesus, was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind. And said, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, uh, and he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, and said on one to another, What matter of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now we're going to look at this from a number of different perspectives, uh, mainly of which we're going to get down to at the end or some of the applications that we oftentimes bring out of this. And I hope that we're able to set apart one application way above all the others. So kind of be thinking ahead because I'm going to ask for some of that later on. What are some of the applications that you make? Again, this being familiar to us, what are some of the applications that you have made or have heard made uh, concerning this particular miracle? What are some of the main things we say? What are some of the lessons that we oftentimes learn? Kind of be thinking about some of those. But before we get into that, let's talk about a few different things. One being what I'm going to call just simply the situation. You have Jesus here. Of course, we know of him as going on to the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of uh, Tiberias or Gethsemane. There are other names that are given to that, really depending on what side of the shore that you're on. 
as to how that is referenced. And I've used that illustration before to say that depending on where you live in a certain town, you may look at a lake or a body of water and you may call it after your hometown or your, uh, your side of the, the shore or something like that. That's probably more than likely what happened then, but this was generally and most well known for being the Sea of Galilee. And it was a tremendous, tremendously uh, useful fishing venue that was been taken advantage of in Jesus' day. I've read in certain documents, and I don't know how accurate they are, but they're supposedly historical documents left over from the early 1st, 2nd, 3rd centuries and all that claimed that during Jesus' day, on any given night, there were oftentimes as many as a thousand fishing boats that could have been found on this little small sea known as the Sea of Galilee. So that would have been uh, very crowded, I guess you would call that, very much populated if that be the case. But that just goes to show that oftentimes the fishing uh, here could have been very prosperous. And I've read several different ways and times that this may be the case as well. By the way, I've never worn a flannel shirt in my life, but these things can put some heat out. I think it's a shirt doing it. Uh, and I'll either get this thing up or get it off in a minute. Uh, but uh, anyway, um, there, uh, that goes to show the fishing was good, is what I was trying to say. It also goes to show, on the other hand, that uh, the way this was situated. Of course, if you were to look on a map, and I just happen to look, this copy of the Bible I happen to have has a few maps in the back. You may have a few. If you look on the map, you can kind of see how it goes down here. There are a number of top, topographical uh, listings are often given. For example, if you were to find one of those maps in the back, if you look up near the top, not completely at the top, but look up near the top of one of those maps, you might find a mountain peak there called Mount Hermon. And if you look at Mount Hermon, supposedly, and this wouldn't have changed over time by very much, but supposedly Mount Hermon is approximately 9,934 feet above sea level. And that's the highest point in the area at least. You come down a little bit, and if you look at the map there, you'll see, if it's a topographical map at least, you'll see the Sea of Galilee being south of that, south uh, east or west, just a little bit of that. You'll see that there are a number of mountain ranges that come around that. And the most immediate peak to the mountain range, or at least to the Sea of Galilee there, was the Mount of Tabor. Now, the Mount Tabor is supposedly about 1,800 feet above sea level there. So you got quite a drop there from 10,000 nearly up here at Mount Hermon down to Mount Tabor at 1,800. But then you place the Sea of Galilee, and it's actually placed 670 some odd feet below sea level. So that one itself begins to divide for us. And you go on down the map there, you'll probably see the Dead Sea. It's uh, 1,200 something feet or so below sea level as well, the deepest or lowest point on earth, by the way. But if you take all that math together, you've got at least a nine to 10,000 foot drop that comes from going to Mount Hermon up here all the way down to Sea of Galilee and a little bit farther down. And so what this does, and I thought about this last night, everybody's got uh, Facebook, many do at least, and you've got access to James Span. I thought I ought to ask James Span what this would do you know, for this situation. But supposedly what it does is it causes the weather there to be very, very uh, temperate if you will. It causes the situation of the weather there, in this case, to be very, the onset of storms to be very sudden. And that's kind of what we read about this in history and what we know about it even today. You can go over and see the Sea of Galilee, and if you were to take a tour around there, you may be told something about that. But because of all these peaks, because of all these rises, 
because of the Sea of Galilee being at one of the lower, not the lowest, the Dead Sea being of the lowest, but one of the lower points in that area making up kind of a basin or a valley, it was very oftentimes the case that the winds that would come off the Mediterranean Sea would hit these peaks and kind of try to come around the peaks. And if they found any opening where they got through, it would cause what we might call a tornado, a typhoon. Or in this case, might cause a hurricane-type situation, just the way that we imagine those things. And so when we read here of this great storm, that's what Mark records it as, and there arose, verse 37, a great storm. He was given by inspiration the word megos. This is a megos or a mega storm. And so what these disciples are encountering there, and remember, out of Jesus' apostles, we know at least how many of them were uh, prior to Jesus calling them. What were they doing? They were professional what? Fishermen. I almost did this. That wouldn't have represented them very much at all. Net fishermen. There may have been as many as seven of those or more that did the same. But five of those we know were this. And so if you get these people who are the majority at least, at least half or nearly half of them could have been fishermen, you put them in a boat with other people that were all from the area, almost likely familiar with being around the Sea of Galilee from time to time in their life and not spending the majority of their lives prior to this on the sea. If you get them in the midst of a Magos storm and you get them in a situation where it said of them that they feared exceedingly, that's verse 41, we'll back up though. Verse 40 says, he said to them, why are you so fearful? What does it mean to be fearful? Full of fear. So you can just imagine in this situation, we've got people where a sudden storm comes up. It is known to be severe. By the way, I didn't tell you this, but you've got the parallel accounts to read in this, like always. You've got the account found in Matthew, which is found in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 27. You've got Luke's account, which is found in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. In each of those other accounts, like always, they give either some additional information or at least they in, intensely uh, kind of in, uh, intensify or emphasize some information that we already have. The strange thing about Mark's account in this particular case, which is rare for Mark, is that actually Mark gives more information in these few verses, going from verses uh, 35 to 41, than any of the other accounts. But the details are still the same. And that is all three of these gospel accounts using different words describe this as a very, 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 you may even add very bad storm. And so the situation is, and I'm just generalizing here, we've got people who are familiar with the area, likely familiar with the typical situations that do arise, but even for them this was a big deal. They're in a place where their fear is brought to a level where Jesus points it out. And it's for really good reason. Their fear is based on something. So we look at that situation. Now, let's do more of what I would rather spend more time into, not just giving that situational background, but think about the actual revelation that is listed here. If you go back and look in verse 35, for example, one piece of information we'll give by revelation in verse 35 is this, and it was on the same day when even was come that he said, let us pass over to the other side. 
Why would Mark, and this is assumption here, but you can kind of understand it by the context we built in the last four chapters. Why might Mark add that this is on the same day? I suppose there's no wrong answers. Why might he say this is on the same day? Absolutely, which he has done. What, the, what does he do throughout the Gospel of Mark? Immediately, 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 43 times. He uses the words for immediately, straightway, anon, straightforth. And here it shows him being active. It also draws not only the active, active part of this, but it draws back that there are connections that need to be drawn as to what has happened. What sometimes happens in any man or woman's life, when you go from one day to the next, particularly if it's been a, a successful day or a difficult day, what do you remind yourself about going through that 24-hour period? We say, well, let's see what will come of tomorrow or today. You know, things can change. You can have great successes one day, and that may not have anything to do with what happens the next. You can have failures, thankfully, happening in one day, and that may not have anything to do with the next. But if we see the emphasis here on the fact that he's active, in one case for sure, and the fact that it just happens that Mark throws in, by inspiration, that's the reason behind it really, but Mark makes mention of the fact it is the same day. To me, that is something similar to uh, us seeing in other New Testament writers when they write two words, therefore or wherefore. Now, I won't take time to review four chapters, but I would look back up the page for, for example and for sure if we see that it is on the same day, what has just happened preceding verse? We'll go back up one verse. Verse 34 it tells us this, But without a parable spake he not unto them, and when they were alone he expounded all things to his disciples. What did he talk about? preceding verses, apparently, throughout chapter 4, just looking at that chapter, he has given those parables, the parable of the sower being the first there, covered the first 20 verses. Verses 21 and forward he picked up. He gave yet another parable, which we could refer to in different ways, but at least the parable of the measure. He brings forth the parable, or I skipped one, verse 21, the parable of the light. He brings the parable of the measure over in verse 24. He brings yet another two more parables about the, the growth of seed and the growth of ears of corn and the way they expand and all. He expounded those things, verse 44, to his disciples. And then on the same day now, contextually, he's just had what I would just have to call an in-depth discussion with his disciples so that they could understand what? I'm thinking one thing you won't think of, probably, but we'll, we'll mention it. For one, he's expounded the kingdom of God. Those parables that are listed from verses 1 through verse 34 are parables about the kingdom of God, the growth of that kingdom, and the need for his disciples to help to expand that kingdom, to take the seed that he's given them and sow it, to take the light that he's offered them and reflect it, 
to take the, the seed again and to plant that and allow the growth to come forth and to stand back in measure of what is said in the preceding verses immediate context to not be concerned about how successful he or she may believe in the moment that sowing has been. To let God be the judge of that. And he has expounded. That word means he has unfolded that. He's just unfolded to them how great he is, how great the kingdom is and will be. And then it says on the same day, no separation. There's a few different times when, a number of times actually, throughout the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke particularly, we have these. But then in John we have a couple that are given as well where Jesus performs great miracles where multitudes of people are witness to those miracles, including his disciples slash apostles. And right behind performing those miracles, we see them doing what with their faith? Stumbling in it. Falling in it. In spite of the fact this context says he has just expounded on that. Now there's some encouragement and some discouragement. The discouragement is how could they do that? How could they spend one-on-one personal, actual, physical time with our Lord, witnessing His miracles, hearing His teaching, having Him explain that to them, and they still have issue with keeping and holding on to their own faith? That's the discouraging part, but it's also encouraging because if they were like that, what can we expect of self? It's not that we shouldn't try. It's not that we shouldn't uh, struggle and, and attempt to keep our faith and to hold on to that, but being confident that our faith has to be in Him and completely in Him. Now, that said that, verse 36, And when they had sent away the multitudes, He took even as He was into the ship, and there were other little ships with Him. So we've got the ship that He's in, most likely in that same ship, his apostles. And then there are other little ships. Just assumption. Who may have been in the other little ships? Hmm? People who wanted to follow, most likely. So they would have been, by definition, what? Disciples of his. You can be in a, a disciple and not be an apostle, but you couldn't be an apostle without being a disciple. So we got disciples there, most likely, in these other ships who are there. What does that mean? It means when he performs this miracle, as he does for us, it would be about in 35 seconds of reading. But when he performs the miracle over this lapse of time, there are more witnesses there than we make note of, typically. It's not only for his apostles, but for those who would, would be or could be potential disciples of his to witness. So there are other little ships. We already mentioned in verse 37, there arose a great storm of wind. How great was the storm? He, well, Mark tells us that this storm here, that mega storm, was such that the waves beat on the ship so that it was now full. Now, the implication comes out in Mark's account as well as Matthew, as well as Luke, because they all give it the same general description but it's to the point that the ship apparently is about to sink now there have been discoveries of course we could never say and i would i'm glad that we can actually because of what we would do with that we might worship such a thing but there have been general discoveries of ships 
and that according to uh, geologists, not geologists, what is this, um, archaeologists, there have been ships that have been discovered on the banks of this sea that supposedly were somewhere in the neighborhood. Of course, they're different ones, but one of the common, more common ones that they've discovered was about 27 feet long, seven and a half to eight foot wide, and about four feet deep. How big is that? Seven and a half to eight foot wide is a little bit wider than between these pews. I'm not going, I'm sick, so I can lay down, uh, but so it'll be a little farther than that. 27 feet would be about what? We can, we can do it. One, two, about here. Is that a big ship? Not by our standards, not a Titanic, not a whatever the seas. In his day, that would have been normal, typical, average. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, you imagine that ship, if that were the similar size, we don't know that it was. Maybe it's populated by 12, 13 people. They're on the Sea of Galilee, which already is by the topography of it. Could have been and often is a dangerous place. Which, by the way, I've told the, one of the main reasons they fished at night was not that the fishing was that much better, but oftentimes for whatever reason at night, the sea was a little bit calmer, a little bit less likely that storms would arise. So we have them here in this ship. We have other ships there around about them. They are there, and it says this ship was, quote, now full. If that is even correct, what is going to be the outcome of this ship by the information we have. It's gone. What will be the survival rate you would assume in that? Not very good. Depend on where they were and all, but of course with the waves doing what these were doing, not very good. And so their response, they turn, verse 38 says, he was in the hinder end of the part of the ship. And he was asleep on a pillow. And they awake unto him and said this, Master, carest thou not that we do what? So they think what's going to happen? We're done. Now, they rebuke him. There are a couple rebukes that happen here. One is the rebuke of the disciples. The second one is the rebuke of the ways, which he gives. But, but they react to this. I'm going to just assume by my standards. They react to this, to me, very normally, very average. I don't know that this ties necessarily very well or has to mean anything, but you read this account in Mark, and, and as I've already emphasized, Mark just tells us on the same day, I mean, verse 35 again, when even was come, he saith unto them. So we kind of can identify the day. We can identify the activities of the day, the actions of the day, the activities, whatever. If you look in Luke's account, which I thought was pretty interesting, go to Luke's account. Go to Luke chapter 8. Look in Luke chapter 8. I don't know if there's any significance to this. I'm not claiming that there really is, but I'll tell you something about it that does help me to grasp a little bit. So Luke chapter 8, look in verse 22. It's the way Luke delivers the same account. And it now came to pass on a certain day. We speak of something being on a certain day. What do we mean? Certain. Just emphasize the word certain. What does that mean? 
So that means specific. So that means this is on a specific day. Now, there are one or two ways to look at that. One way you can look at that is the way we read it. You can say, well, Luke, you know, Mark tells us that it was at evening time on the same day. So he gives us an identifying marks or a couple of marks as to what day this was. Luke says this was on a certain day as if, as if Luke writes this down through inspiration to say this is a day that stands out in my memory. I think that's a good way to understand this. But also... In New Testament biblical language, particularly if it's coming out of the mouth of Christ or the record that is oftentimes inspired, just, just file this away. When you read the word certain in the New Testament, it can also mean typical. Now, two sides of that coin. What happens here ultimately is not the typical day. It's not every day that the God of heaven in a body calms the seas. But on the other side of that, the typical or the certain, the typical days are the types of days that only God can take care of. God can do things that for Him would be typical. For Him could be just another day, just average, and it'd be so impressive to us. We also read in Matthew as well as Luke's account uh, a couple different words, but they basically come down to the fact they marveled or they were amazed. Now, their marveling and their amazement comes in of what he does, what he's able to do, common the Psalms. But we have a certain day. So this is just on a certain day. This is on a certain day, specific day, or maybe just an average day. But he calms those storms. Now, we get back into our account. They believe they would perish. Verse 39, he arose. Jesus arose. And verse 39, Mark's account says, he rebuked the wind and said in the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now look in verse 37, there was a great what? Storm. Verse 39 says there was a mega great calm. Have you ever been on the water in a storm? For me, that would be Logan Martin, Lake Wee Dowie. Um, what's the one that was in LaGrange? West Point Lake, that, that's about Lake Martin, maybe went to a few times. That's about as much information as I have on it. So I don't know about seas, necessarily. But if you've ever been on a, on a body of water, maybe in a boat, maybe on a storm, then you know that if that storm arises, there's fear involved in that. What would you think happened if the storm stopped, though? What continues to... There'd be a wake. I mean, I mean, you get, in, you get in the backyard in somebody's pool. If somebody jumps in, do they go, do they bust through the water? Maybe they do that, what we call a belly buster. What happens? This happened the moment he said it. That went from being a great storm to a great calm. Something happened here as he uttered these words as he flexed his power before them that caused the great calm on that sea. Now verse 40 says, He said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Now the word for fearful right here, the first word that we see at least, I'm looking in verse 40. The first word for fearful means literally, Why are you being so timid, or the worst form of it, I say worser form of it, 
Why are you so cowardly? What would our answer to that be? If we weren't talking to Jesus, what would our answer be? Man, you're crazy. You, you, you were then stormed too. I know you were asleep, but you woke up in time to see. He says that you're, you're being fearful. Should they be fearful? Not with all the great things he's done already. Not with all the miracles they've seen. But guess what they are? They're fearful. They're just human. The contrast of that comes up, however. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? Why is it you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly. So when they are afraid, and they are timid, and they are cowardly, then we have the word magos coming in again and says they fear now exceedingly. And said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? And you talk about fears. What are some common fears that we have? Spiders. That one's pretty common. I join in that one. I'll take a rattlesnake any day because if he bites you, you know what you got to do. Spider bites you, you wake up and your leg's rotting off and you don't know what happened. So we got, we got a fear of spiders. I jotted down a few because I can't remember anything. That's arachnophobia. All right, what about another? I mentioned one. Well, storms will mention. Snakes is another one here. Uh, that's ophiodo. I can't say that one uh, there. Phobia. There's the fear of storms. I wrote that one down somewhere here. Astrophobia. What are some things others are afraid of? We heard of claustrophobia, fear of small spaces. Uh, acrophobia, fear of high places. Um, agrophobia, fear of open places. Pathophobia, fear of disease or death. Uh, this one here is, is too common. Ergophobia, what's that mean? Fear of work. Now I told somebody one time, I'm not afraid of work at all. I'll lay right down beside it and go to sleep. But... Fear of work is, is one. Um, hemophobia, fear of blood. Glassophobia, this one's common. Thankfully, Cohen doesn't seem to have it. Fear of public speaking. Uh, you got me on that one. I'm scared of that word. What'd you say? Triscodecophobia. Tristodecophobia. Triscodecophobia. Yeah. That's another one, I guess. I've seen the fear of 666 in a grocery store. You know, somebody I call that out and somebody I'll throw it back at you and come on. The... That's silly, by the way. There are all types of fear. Agoraphobia. Agoraphobia, I forget what that is, but. Yeah, we're going to get to that one too. Which that's also involved in open spaces. But there are, there are plenty. I mean, you can Google search. Uh, you can look it up. It, it, the list just goes on and on and on. There's the top 10, the top 20, the top 1,000, whatever. You can read over. Um, but there's a couple present here. There's that astrophobia, which was mentioned. Now, that's not a Greek word by any means, but that is the idea of being afraid of the storm. In this situation, I give them the right. Uh, we've got to be careful about throwing disciples, apostles on the bus at any time. 
But why did their fear go from being fearful, verse 40, to exceedingly feared in verse 41? That's right. Let's, let's back away just for a minute. Keep, keep filing away some of that. What are some general applications we give to this? I, I, I jotted down a whole little list of, of things that I'm not going to try to say. What, some general, what do you take away from this account? We read it. Preacher, teacher gets up. We sit in our own time and our Bible's open. We make notes in our margins. What do we often say concerning this account? When you're in the middle of the storm, what do you do? Turn to Jesus. Hang on to your faith. Don't be afraid. Pretty good application. What are some others? Any? I didn't take time to write any down, so you got the better cheat sheet than I do. Mm -hmm. Yes. He's there. He's present. I wrote down a few things now uh, concerning that. This represents to us his power, his promises, his presence, his purpose, his peace, his person, his power. I said power already. That's some of the lessons learned. Some of the lessons lost that I write it down, they doubted his goodness when they said, don't you even care. They doubted his grace when they said, we're going to perish. They doubted his guarantee when he had already told them in the preceding verse, let's go pass over the other side, which the other accounts bring out even more. Uh, in Matthew's account, verse 22, 8 and 22, he tells them, he commands them, I should say, let us go past the other side. He commanded them to go over. So they're, only, they're in his will. When they get in the ship and go across with him, they're within the will of his his. His will, God's will. I, I do all that and say all that, and we're out of time. But just to, to bring myself, myself, to this realization. We've got these obvious applications, great applications. The main one that I would think of and others also relating to the fact, hey, he's with us. You're in the middle of that storm. He's with us. Don't be afraid because he's there. He cares. He's concerned. We can see his grace. We can see his glory. Wonderful application. But what was really being taught? We find applications in many things. What's really being taught? What's being taught is exactly what they got out of this. He is greater than even the storm. And I know we can apply that to the storms of our lives. And that's, that's the only way I've ever preached it, taught it, or understood it. But we need to apply it to what it was. He's greater than nature and the creation of it. The same God who spoke this world into existence, of course He has the power to cause the sea to calm. Of course he can do that. He's greater than all. And so out of all the miracles, there have been at least 14-ish proves, let me reword that, proves through, through 
uh, wonder or word that we've already seen throughout these four chapters. I gave you 13 of them. This is 14. Out of that whole list, this one here stands as high as any. He just basically caused the universe to stand still in their world. And not only his apostles see it in the ship, but the other ships get to see it too. And greater than that, we get to stand here 2,000 some odd years post and we stand back and if we see it through reality's eyes, we see it too. And so when you read this, this little snippet here, talking about fear, and they feared exceedingly. What was their greatest fear in the moment? The fear of the unknown. There's a word for that. Xenophobia. Starts with the X though. Xenophobia is the most common fear in the world, I guess wherever it has been, the fear of what's unknown. And the only thing they said was they feared exceedingly and they looked to one another and said, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? <laughs> 